0: The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science.
1: And I'm Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies.
0: Today, we welcome Neelam Naikar. Neelam is the lead scientist at the Center for Cognitive Work and Safety Analysis. She joined what is now the Defense Science and Technology Group as a research scientist in 1996 and was promoted to senior research scientist in 1999. Some of Neelam's major projects have involved the extension of cognitive work analysis to support the acquisition of complex military systems and also the application of axi-map analysis and the critical decision method to enhance safety in these complex systems. Her current research interests include the development of theories and methods for analyzing cognitive work in complex sociotechnical systems. Neelum obtained a Bachelor of Science with honors in psychology from the University of New South Wales, Australia in 1993, and a PhD in psychology from the University of Auckland, New Zealand in 1996. She is a member of the editorial boards for applied ergonomics, the Journal of Cognitive Engineering and Decision Making, and the Journal of Human Performance in Extreme Environments. She is also the author of the 2013 book, Work Domain Analysis, Concepts, Guidelines, and Cases. Welcome, Neelam. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Laura and Brian. Really looking forward to this conversation. Great. Well, I am always interested in how people got their start. And so I wondered if you can remember the very first paper you ever published and tell us a little bit about that.
2: Okay. Well, my PhD was in the area of cognitive neuropsychology. And so my first published papers were in that field. And during the course of my PhD, I studied people who have split brains And just in case you're not aware of what a split brain is, these are people who have section of the corpus callosum. So, in other words, they don't have the fibres that uh, normally connect the left and right sides of the brain. And so, some of the very early studies on the split brain had shown had led to the discovery, basically, that the left and, side, left and right sides of the brain are specialized in different functions. So the left side of the brain, for example, has the capacity for language, but the right side does not. But what's really interesting about these people, these so-called split brains, is that they're able to function very ordinarily in everyday life. So they're able to drive and they have families and they have jobs and they do cleaning and they do the shopping and so on. And so my um, studies were very much focused in trying to understand how these people may be integrating the information across the left and right sides of the brain. So some of the very early studies, for example, had shown that, well, if you presented an object in uh, a split brain person's left visual field so that the information was directed to the right side of the brain, they weren't able to tell you what that object was because the right side of the brain doesn't have the capacity for language. But if you presented that same object in the right visual field so that the information was directed to the left visual field, then they were able to verbalize what that object was. And so my studies were trying to understand then well if, if you know there was you know we could observe those sorts of evidence of information not being integrated across the two hemispheres with these sorts of studies how were they able to function very well in everyday life and so my the series of experiments that I conducted because it was very much a field in which we did lots of laboratory experiments. uh, the experiments I conducted relied on this phenomenon of apparent motion. So basically what that phenomenon is, is if you flash two spots of light really quickly, one after each other, it looks like, it appears as the light light move from the location of the first spot to the location of the second spot. So what this meant was that I could present each spot of light to uh, different sides of the brain, In these split brain people and asked them whether they could perceive the the direction in which the light had moved, whether it had moved from left to right or right to left. And interestingly, those studies showed that they could in fact do that task just as well as people in the control condition who did not have split brains. But what was also interesting that if, if I coloured the flashes of light so that they were either both red or both green or one red and one green and asked people whether the colours were same or different, The people with split brains were unable to say so. And so, what this suggested was that at least some of the information integration was occurring through the subcortical fibers of the brain. So, fibers at the base of the brain, very primitive fibers in the sense that they were present very early on in evolutionary history. And what we knew about these fibers was that while they had the capacity to support the perception of motion, they, they did not have the capacity to support color perception. So that color perception obviously then came much later on in our evolutionary history compared to motion perception. So my first published papers were based around that set of experiments. That is fascinating. It truly is. I think it was a topic that was you know, inherently interesting and no one could fail to be interested in in this subject area. And so that was enormously motivating and interesting. And, you know, you know, I was able to sustain my passion in that PhD topic right throughout my PhD.
0: Wow. And was it hard
2: to find people to participate in these studies? Yes. So there are very few people with, um, split brains that there's a group in Australia. There there are some people in New Zealand where I did my PhD. And then there were also uh, people in Los Angeles, actually. So I got to travel to Los Angeles as part of my PhD to do some studies there.
0: Wow, very interesting. Okay, so you did this fascinating PhD work, and were successful enough to publish it and then at some point made your way to naturalistic decision-making. So tell me how you found your way to NDM. Well,
2: just when I was compl- uh, completing my PhD, so just in the, around the time that I was submitting my PhD th- uh, thesis for examination, an advertisement appeared on our notice board at the university in Auckland and it was an advertisement from the Defense Science and Technology Group saying that they had several positions throughout the, their organization. And it actually piqued my interest because it obvi- obviously was talking about very complex uh, real world settings. And, um, you know, although I was fascinated by the topic of split brains, I obviously also really had an interest in how people operate in complex real world settings and certainly the research I had done for my undergraduate thesis had been more along that those lines. And so when I saw this advertisement, I, I decided I would apply for a position and actually when I'd seen the advertisement, the deadline for applications had already passed, but I decided to write to the Defence Science and Technology Group and ask if I could submit a late application, which they allowed me to do, and, uh, and then I did an interview and was offered the job. And so when I arrived in Australia and started at the Defence Science and Technology Group, one of the uh, first tasks I was given was to look at three-dimensional uh, visual displays or perspective displays. And the question was, would it lead to better performance in military operators compared with two-dimensional visual displays or plan view displays? And so having been trained in experimental psychology, I promptly set up an experiment to answer this question. And so I had uh, one condition where uh, military operators, so I used real military operators in my experiments, and so uh, sometimes they used a a three-dimensional perspective display and other times they used uh, the standard conventional plan view display. And what I found was that irrespective of the condition, which type of display they had, they all performed really badly. And so I thought, well, you know, either the security of the nation is in grave danger (laughs) (laughs) or there's something really wrong with my experiment. And I think over time I arrived at the realisation that I had set up the experiment in a way that basically stripped these people of their expertise or their experience, that they weren't able to think and act and behave in the same ways that they would do in the real world or in the natural world. And I, I just thought to myself, I mean, what am I doing looking at technologies for people you know, whose work I don't even know what they do and, and how they do it? And so I started to look into that, and that is how my interest in work analysis techniques began in frameworks like cognitive work analysis and knowledge elicitation
0: methods like uh, the critical decision method. That is a great story. Um, <laughs> it must have been sort of frightening uh, at the beginning, though, as you're getting the data and wondering what... What, what What's going on? <laughs> it truly was. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. And I, I feel like as a, a researcher just starting out your career, um, it probably took some humility on your part to not just uh, um, kind of accept that the experiment ought to have worked and there must be something wrong with them. You know, I think uh, you this it, kind of speaks to your own humility and your own curiosity that you really wanted to get to the bottom of it. And were willing to kind of acknowledge that what you had designed maybe wasn't the right way to answer this question.
2: Well, thank you for saying that, Laura. I must admit I hadn't thought of it in that way, but um, yes, I certainly realized that something was wrong and not, and that it wasn't with the military operators.
1: Uh, so, I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about your uh, role in the Defense Science and Technology Group, but actually, um. And listen to the first part, uh, the first question you answered with your focus on w- what we might call micro, micro, micro psychology, uh, you know, way down to the to the to the neuron level. Um, you know, there's over the past 10 or so years, we've been talking a lot about macro cognition and being. What as a a focus uh, level, if you will, for the NDM community, you know, at the at the uh, decision making, uh, sense making levels, uh, problem detection levels, and in lots of ways, we've sort of contrasted that with with attention and perception. Um, and and you you at the start of your career we're, were way down in the weeds, if you will. And I'm, I'm just wondering as you start to become aware of these other approaches and, and cognitive work analysis. And I'm just wondering if there was uh, any sort of ambivalence or any consideration you had about um, sort of where the, where the best place to focus was, or did you see connections between those levels that, um, that you uh, were excited by?
2: My feeling is more and more a real questioning about what those very constrained laboratory experiments can tell us when in relation to the sorts of problems I work on at the Defence Science and Technology Group, I have a hard time seeing how those studies could lead to meaningful and useful results. I go to conferences often where I hear people about to uh, present a, 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 you know, a laboratory study and they start off by telling about, uh, telling about the, the question that they tried to address in the study. And I think oh, that's a really interesting question and so I sit up and listen. But then they tell me about how they went about designing the experiment that was supposed to address that question and I immediately think, you know, how is that going to tell us about, you know, the answer to this question? So I do actually find myself questioning those sorts of laboratory studies more and more. Uh, Perhaps they are reasonable approaches for certain types of questions. But once again, if you look at the split brain, I mean, it did lead to those really great discoveries about you know, what the left side of the brain is specialized in compared with what the the right side of the brain is specialized in. So maybe it's appropriate for answering those sorts of questions. But, for example, I don't think uh, the laboratory studies can fully inform how these people actually, actually operate normally in their everyday lives.
1: Right. So... Yeah. The left brain, right brain piece is interesting because, you know, if if you sort of think about recognition, prime decision-making, you know, that sensation that experts have that they, um, that they sort of know what's best to do next. Um, you might think there's an emotional component to that, uh, or that it's a emotional and cognitive and kind of hard to split those apart. So I, I talking to folks who do this kind of Research, you know, down in the weeds of of neurobiology, I, I'm always sort of yearning for this holy grail connection between the macro and the micro. And you know, at the end of the day, there's there's got to be a micro base to all of this, right? Because we're physical creatures and and atoms and that sort of thing. Um, and yet, we know that there's this higher level of decision making that sort of happens almost autonomously when you get. Um, you know, when you get to that expert level. And so um, I'm just curious if, if over the years you've seen people make good connections between the two levels that's kind of inspired any of your work.
2: I, I can't think of any significant instances. My feeling is that those studies at the micro level are telling us something about, say, how the brain functions but I do still find myself having significant questions about whether it's telling us anything real about how the brain functions in the real world. Um, a lot of these people, who, uh, including myself, you know, who've engaged in this sort of research, the the thinking is that the real world is too complex to be to be studied. Uh, fruitfully and so they you know decompose the world into smaller and smaller components and they try to address questions that are directed at those little components and the thinking is that one day we will be able to add up all these little bits of knowledge and build up that understanding of the full world and its complexity but I see no evidence of that and I think that is particularly highlighted to me when I am working on design projects. So when I'm working on design, so for many years I've worked on team design now, But and and when I started working in the area, I really looked to to the literature. I mean, because having come with a PhD in cognitive neuropsychology, I really looked to the literature to see what it could tell me about how to design a team. And despite the fact that there had been decades of research on teamwork, I don't think anything could really inform how to design a a team for a complex military aircraft from scratch. And I remember looking through lots and lots of papers early on, and there was actually a chapter in a book that uh, I, you know, that I might have been made aware of on the internet, and it was called Team Design. So I didn't have this book, so I very excitedly requested a copy from our library, anxiously waited for this book to arrive, and then one day it arrived, and the library sent me a notice, an email to say that it arrived, so I rushed down to the library, got this book, brought it into my office, sat down, opened up to the chapter on team design, and it said step one, form a steering committee. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I have found that despite the decades of research, even in the human factors area, that sort of research that has been done on, uh, in more, you know, laboratory-based settings haven't offered me too much in terms of how to go about designing a, a team for complex military systems.
1: Right. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know. There's just this yearning sort of for this discovery that's going to connect these two levels because intuitively it seems like they should be connected. Um but but your your experience and I think is similar to others who have uh had had insights at both of those levels but not really seen the connection.
2: Okay. Um, that's Interesting to know.
1: Yeah. So so enough of my uh, rabbit hole. Tell us about your current role at the uh, Defense Science and Technology Group.
2: Well, my current role is uh, described as a research specialist role, and that is actually quite a meaningful description for me because what it signifies to me is that I'm not required to manage people administratively but I'm fully expected to and I do mentor a number of junior staff. And similarly, I'm not required to manage budgets or people to achieve client requirements, but I am expected to and I remain, you know, strongly committed to and motivated by defence or client problems. So to tell you the truth, this is in many respects my dream job because when I met uh, my partner Russell many years ago, he had said to me, you know, he had always wished he could be a gentleman scientist like Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin was somebody who was independently wealthy but, you know, chose to spend his time doing research and make exciting new discoveries. And I've always thought that this job that I have at a DSD group is probably the closest I could come to being a gentlewoman scientist. So even though, you know, there have been periods in my career where I have carried a, a high administrative and management workload, for a large part of it, I have effectively been paid to read and write and think about really cool problems all day. And I have had the environment created for me to enable me to do that well. And that's something I'm really grateful for.
0: That does sound fabulous. <laughs> so I am wondering if you reflect back on your career, is there one project that stands out as particularly fulfilling? Well, that is a difficult question. If I had to pick just one, I think
2: I'd pick, pick the first one where I worked on crewing concepts for our airborne early warning and control system. And so on that project I used cognitive work analysis to develop a crewing concept for this future first-of-a-kind system. And uh, the, the crewing concept we, we developed, so my colleagues and I using cognitive work analysis, was accepted by the Royal Australian Air Force. And so that was obviously really fulfilling. But one of the reasons I would pick that one out is when I look back at that, I marvel at my naivety, you know, as I went into that project. And at the same time the confidence that goes with that naivety, because you know, I had I had very little experience in work analysis at the time. You know, I'd come to the Defense Science and Technology Group with a PhD in cognitive neuropsychology. I had never developed a crewing concept before, let alone one that anyone had accepted, and I had very little knowledge of the military domain. And yet I remember quite confidently announcing to some Air Force personnel who were visiting us that, you know, they had mentioned that they needed to work out what was the best crewing concept for this aircraft. And I said to them that my colleague Brett Pierce and I would uh, work on this problem. And, you know, Brett at the time didn't have that much more experience than I did. And so I remember after we briefed the Air Force personnel on this, going back into my office and Brett saying to me, uh, Neilam, so how are we going to do this? And I said, yeah, you know, I don't know, but but we'll, but we'll get there. And, you know, I look back at that and just, just marvel at that because I think if, if I had known all the challenges and difficulties that lay in the path ahead, I might not have ever made a start. And so in hindsight, I actually think, preserving that sort of naivety is important even as one goes on, you know, and later on in the career. And that's something I have actually strived to do, to preserve that sort of naive approach and the, the sort of youthful confidence that goes with that, which actually
0: becomes harder as you get older and ha- have more experience in research. It's true. It's almost an act of faith to think Um, I have these methods. This is a really hard problem. I don't know the answer, but I I, I think I'm going to be able to learn something useful here.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. There's a sense of belief and and maybe a sense of optimism to have, I think, working on these very complex problems.
0: Yeah. So how did you learn about work analysis? Did you read on it or um, it wasn't part of your studies, right? No, no. It definitely wasn't part
2: of my studies at all. I think I did largely achieve it through reading. And, you know, I am really big on reading and I think I almost learned best that way. And so I did spend, you know, many years uh, reading and trying to understand the details. But I was also required to apply my learning pretty much as I was going along. So perhaps it's a mixture of reading and being uh, forced almost or required to apply that that learning on, on real complex systems as one is going along.
0: I'm just, uh, thinking from memory, it seems like a lot of the early writing about, uh, cognitive work analysis focused on, um, uh, things like troubleshooting, uh, photocopier or, um, uh, a, a kind of, uh, made up world where all the, um, constraints were known, um, and, and you really kind of dove into this world with lots of uncertainty and lots of variability and highly dynamic. Um, uh, so, so, even as you were learning the methods, you were extending them. I guess that is
2: true in a sense, because certainly there weren't very many examples of cognitive work analyses and these sorts of techniques being applied to the scale and complexity of the systems that I was working on. And I guess the other element of that was there weren't too many examples of cognitive work analysis being used for problems like team design or identifying training requirements For fighter pilots, there had been a lot of work done on ecological interface design, but a lot of those studies were certainly very laboratory-based and, at the time, largely involved a single operator working on a single display. Didn't weren't really experiments looking at displays for teams, for example. So I guess the other way I was trying to. work things out was how to actually use cognitive work analysis for totally different problems, like uh, the design of crewing concepts.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, it is kind of amazing that um, you were able to, um, so early in your career, read up on these things, extend them, apply them in new ways and um, come away with a, a really powerful contribution. That's that's a great way to start a career.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. And I must say, now when I look back at it, I do actually struggle to see how, how I was able to achieve that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it certainly required an awful lot of work at the time, and um, you know, and that that has actually continued throughout my career at DSD Group. I you know, I rarely do the same thing twice. I've rarely done the same thing twice. And if I have ever done the same thing twice, so, for example, I have two projects now on which I've worked on crewing concepts in particular, but, you know, the intent is always to really build on what's gone before. So after I'd done the crewing concept for the uh, airborne early warning and control system. I most recently worked on a crewing concept for a future maritime surveillance aircraft, but I knew although the work we had done for the airborne early warning and control system was strong in many respects, like any research it, it had its limitations and so on this new project I sought to address those limitations. With the method, and once again, that took many years of work and thinking and I guess the beauty of working at the Defense Science and Technology Group is we are involved very early on, and so we do actually have the time to to work on the methods and so um, as a result, we not only developed the crewing concept that was once again. Accepted by the Royal Australian Air Force, but it also led to a new uh, modeling tool for cognitive work analysis, which we've called the Diagram of Work Organization Possibilities. So
0: that too has been really rewarding, but difficult and challenging. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the things about working in this um, career field: is the methods we use never look the very same to twice. Every every problem we apply them to, we're adapting and expanding and extending or streamlining or, um, you know, w- w- we have to tailor them every single time. And so there's always this discovery process. It's never, oh, I know exactly what to do. We'll just work through these five steps and get to the answer.
2: <laughs> yes, that, that is true in some respects. I mean, one um, one framework that I've found you know that I uh, haven't found a need to expand or change significantly you know, in a fundamental sense. Has been the abstraction hierarchy, mm. so that seems to have really stood the test of time. And not only did you know Yen's uh, develop that that framework through a series of field studies, but then Kim Vicente and you know his uh, students who are now professors in their own rights have done so much experimental work on that framework showing that designs developed with the abstraction hierarchy tend to lead to better performance than uh, more conventional displays and you know, it, that, that framework hasn't been changed in any sort of fundamental or, or significant sense. So, I think we do have some frameworks that, um, you know, have stayed relatively unchanged. But I do actually struggle sometimes, I have to say, with all the, all the tools and techniques and methods that are invented in our area. And, you know, so I I remember even when I started, it can be extremely confusing to know which one to select and which one to pick. And so you do sometimes wonder whether, you know, what, what that is reflecting, what, you know, whether it is just pushing the boundaries to improve our methods or whether it depends on specific analyst preferences or, you know, the particularities of a a domain. And so there's a real challenge there because, of course, if we could arrive at a stable framework, it would be much easier and quicker to come up with good designs for these really complex problems. But we, I agree with you, we do seem to have to do a lot of tailoring and then that involves a lot more work
0: and time. Sure, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So what is the most exciting thing you're working on right now? Well,
2: they're actually – I'm involved in two major projects right now and they're both exciting in their own ways, but one of them is uh, – the problem of advanced intelligent technologies and the potential of incorporating it into predominantly human workforces in the future, the potential of incorporating those sorts of technologies into predominantly human workforces in the the very long-term future I'm talking about. And what, what the work is about is essentially the realization that when you are focusing on looking at the possibility of such radical transformations to the workplace that it doesn't make sense to simply just focus on the level of human interaction with technology in the workplace. That there are a whole lot of other really important questions to think about, like what kind of society do we want to live in? Uh, What kinds of uh, legislative and regulatory frameworks will we need to have? What sort, of, what sort of education and training pipelines will we need to create to supply the kinds of workers we will need? And also what sort of organisational structures and cultures are most conducive to this kind of workforce? And so the, some of the work we're doing now is currently examining uh, this issue from all the, these different angles, you know, right from the... Uh, so looking at the whole entire socio-technical system you know taking a much broader approach starting from the societal level needs and issues to the government policy imperatives on education and employment that would be needed and uh, the legislative and regulatory frameworks as well as the uh, organizational and human needs and coupled with the potential of emerging technologies which are being developed faster than we can speak almost and um, what we're finding is a, a lot of these very interesting questions are typically studied by researchers from a separate uh, you know distinct disciplines, which is necessary because these issues do need to be studied in you know a great deal of depth by the experts in those areas. but we think it's also important to understand how the confluence of these factors. Uh, can shape the outcomes that are reached and we're recognising that the outcomes are not just simply about improving performance or, and productivity or, or improving safety levels in organisation, but also about um, enhancing workers' health and, um, and how to gain acceptability from society or, or what would be acceptable to society. And so uh, that's something that we're working on now that I'm finding
0: pretty exciting. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been asked to think at that level. That, that's a little um, intimidating to be thinking about at a societal and legislative level.
2: Yes. It, it, and again, it's very challenging, you know, because yeah. uh, it requires expanding your knowledge in, in all sorts of areas and disciplines that you never imagined at any time in your life. But I think that has been one of the things about working at the Defence Science and Technology Organisation is that you, you don't dream up problems. Problems are thrown at you all the time. And um, you know you're, you're forced to think about issues that you may not have worked on before or thought very much about.
1: Right, so we've we've gone from neurons to society and we're only thirty-nine minutes into this uh podcast. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is covering a lot of ground already. It is. I wonder uh for, for someone who's interested in, in that NDM level of analysis, uh what, what sort of advice do you give someone who's just starting out trying to understand what that level's about?
2: Well, essentially it would be not to be afraid to try something new, I guess, coming from my background and in my career, uh, to give it a shot and, and to see where it takes you. And that actually not having years of knowledge and training and experience in an area is actually very important in research in terms of discovery and in having new insights. And so that, that would be my advice, not to be afraid to try something new.
0: So I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to cognitive work analysis and um, you know, we've talked about some of the work you've done in that space and I know it's been very influential throughout the NDM community and the military community and um, lots of folks. I wondered if there are one or two insights about designing for the envisioned world that most people don't appreciate.
2: Well, I think a, a key insight for me is that when you're designing for an envision world, it's very difficult to be sure about the details of the technologies in, in that envision world, because they're still emerging. and as a result, it's very difficult to be sure about the details of people's behaviors and activities and cognitive strategies in interacting with those technologies. But it is possible to start to define very early on what the constraints or boundaries on those behaviours or activities are, you know, what boundaries you you don't want crossed during, you know, during actual operations in this um, envisioned world, say. And um, what those boundaries do is essentially rule out some possibilities for how work can be done in that envisioned world, but they also incorporate or bound a very large number of possibilities for how people can work in that envisioned world. And so the idea becomes to design to support those possibilities. And designing to accommodate the range of possibilities is important if you want to create an adaptive, resilient system. So you don't want to bound that system to working in only a handful of different ways because we can't anticipate every single situation the, the system will encounter in, in that envisioned world. So just as an example of that on you know, the The future maritime surveillance aircraft project that I was talking about, the Air Force were considering a future concept in which uh, the people on this uh, aircraft uh, might control an uninhabited aerial system or UAS to fly down to lower altitudes to detect targets submerged underwater. And so the question we were asked to address was, well, which crew member on the aircraft should control the US, And so using a constraint-based approach, we identified that in fact there were several crew members who could possibly control the US. So there were several possibilities. There were certain crew members who couldn't, who were ruled out, but there were several crew members who could. And who was the best person for the job was very dependent on the circumstances. So we certainly didn't want to limit the design to a handful of situations or scenarios which may in fact never then happen in the real world and so instead we sought to design or come up with a design that supported these crew, uh, the, all of the possibilities for the crew members who could who could do this job and we were able to come up with a pragmatic uh, design solution that integrated Uh, the team uh, training and career progression of uh, pathways of the crew in a way that allowed six different crew members to do this job. And uh, so that significantly enhanced the adaptive capacity and resilience of the system compared with if we had tried to identify who was the best crew member for the job in a limited set of situations or scenarios. And so for me, that that highlights the power of a constraint-based approach, not only in terms of the insights it can lead to in terms of designing for an envisioned world, but because you can identify those sorts of constraints or boundaries very early on in the analysis or very early on before any decision is made to invest in this envisioned world, Uh, one can be involved in a project at the very early stages and therefore have more opportunity to influence the directions that are taken with the design of technologies, for example.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. So let me ask, um, can you think of, tell us about three people who have influenced your thinking or inspired you over the course of your career? that is actually
2: a very diff- difficult question because I think when you start to think about that, you realize just how many people have influenced and inspired, you know, me along the way. But, uh, you know, so three people that I will mention today, uh, certainly one of the most important ones has to be my uh, PhD advisor, so his name is Mike Corblis. And basically, he inspires me uh, or he inspired me while I was doing my PhD because he really approached research with, with a sense of fun. So he wasn't motivated so much by, you know, clocking up yet another publication or having an international reputation or, you know, those sorts of measures of success. He was really very focused on trying to understand something and having fun along the way. And I think one way in which I can illustrate that really clearly is that uh, during my PhD, I published uh, three papers. And on the first paper, you know, um, I was the first author and Mike was the second author. And then on the second paper, I was the first author and... I put Mike down as the second author, but he refused to go along with that. And he said, no, really, you know, that work was done really quite independently. And I think there always comes a time, you know, in a student's career that that they've done the work so independently that the advisor no longer has such a strong claim to the work. And so I was the sole author on that paper. And then I wrote my third paper. And then once again, I was uh, the sole author on that paper. And so just looking back on that, I really admire, you know, his his sense of integrity. And, uh, you know, it's inspired me to um, have the same sort of integrity in in my research career. So he would definitely be one of them. Uh, Another person I should mention is somebody I've only met once and so hasn't influenced me so much as a person but has influenced me through his work and his writings. And, you know, that's Jens Rasmussen. And I think that almost anyone who knows me would know the great influence he's had on my thinking and my research over many years. And he continues to have that influence. And, um, you know, when I first started reading about Jens's work, I had the feeling that even though, you know, I had studied psychology throughout my, you know, time at university, I was actually learning more about people and how they behave uh, compared with the whole of my psychology degree. And I think that that was because Jens was largely writing about how people work in complex settings in, in a way that resonated with me. And so I spent quite a lot of time, you know, as I said earlier, trying to understand. What, what in fact he was saying, the details of what he was saying, because I think a lot of people also know that his writing can be very difficult um, reading. And, you know, and then I spent uh, have spent a fair bit of my research career applying his ideas to new contexts and to new problems, and then also many years actually trying to build on his ideas, and, you know, that's particularly uh, uh, can be illustrated through the development of tools like the contextual activity template and the diagram of work organization possibility. So without a doubt, you know, he's had a massive influence on me. And I would also in that cognitive work analysis context like to acknowledge Kim Vicente. Um, He inspired me by Well, he has a massive number of publications. The quantity is is huge. But what really inspires me is the quality of all that work. I don't think I've come across... Any paper of his that I thought, well, you know, it wasn't quite up to the standard as some of the others. You know, they all just have this incredibly uh, high level of quality. So he never sacrificed or compromised on the quality. And so that has inspired me to uh, achieve, um, you know, or to maintain a high level of quality in my work. And But I can never hope to achieve the sort. The- Quantity he was able to produce, and so I definitely want to mention him. And if I may, I would like to mention another person, and uh, and and that is uh, you know someone I've known throughout my career and has inspired me all along the way. But I find I'm actually thinking more and more about his ideas now, and uh, you know they're influencing. Me more and more at this later stage of my career, and that is Gary Klein. And you know, everyone talks about Gary's humility and his insights, and certainly always seems to be two steps you know, ahead of everyone else on almost any topic one can imagine. But I particularly wanted to mention Gary for his open-mindedness and his generosity. So I think we would all remember a time when, you know, cognitive work analysis and cognitive task analysis were pitted against each other a lot, so, you know, which was the better approach and and so on. And although Gary worked predominantly on cognitive task analysis and I worked predominantly on cognitive work analysis, he – always, uh, you know, made time available to speak to me and always gave me opportunity to speak about my work. So for example, I remember he was instrumental in inviting me to give a keynote address at one of the naturalistic decision making conferences, which, you know, gave me a very big audience for my work. And so I'm truly inspired by that sort of open mindedness and generosity as well.
0: Nice. That's a great, a great group. I wanted to circle back to Kim Vicente. One of the things, just to add, one, one of the things I really admire about his writing is um, that it's so clear. Uh, so I just, I did not grow up in a cognitive work analysis tradition. Um, and as you said, some of the writing is very dense, but I feel like Kim has made this really accessible, really clear. Um, and that's been a huge contribution.
2: Well, really clear and and engaging, I think. So, yeah. you know, when you're reading his work, you immediately feel engaged. You almost feel like he's, you know, you're, you're talking with him, that he's sitting there saying these things to you rather than you're just reading them. So, yeah, he did have a unique, uh, you know, a special ability in that regard to draw you in. To, to what he was saying through his writing, and at the same time the clarity which helped us all to understand
0: um, some of Jens' ideas better. So I see we're coming to the top of the hour here. I have kind of a fun question here at the end. I wanted to ask, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Well, I would be a fiction writer. Fiction.
2: Ah. Yes. Because ever since I could read, ever since I learned to read, I have been engrossed in stories and imaginary worlds. And, you know, as a child, I read all the time. I read in the middle of the night. I read through breakfast and through lunch and through dinner. And, you know, if my parents called me while I was reading, I just wouldn't hear them at all. I was totally engrossed in what I was reading and you know my uncle tells a story of having a photograph of uh, me at his wedding and in that picture I'm reading a book (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know now I'm I'm an adult and I actually have to behave myself more often and so I don't actually indulge myself in in that uh, way anymore but I I do still read myself to sleep every night and I still read in
0: the middle of the night too I have to say
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would be a fiction writer
0: wow is there a genre murder mysteries or fantasy or science fiction or is there a
2: no not really I do read very widely and broadly so you know I don't think I could uh, pick up a genre
0: okay Nice. Well, thank you, Neela, for speaking with us today. It has really been a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. And thank you, Brian. I've really enjoyed myself. So on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast.
1: I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.